Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, you guys, here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast, a podcast where we talk about all kinds of stuff, <clears throat> uh, mostly religion, lately a lot of psychology. Uh, I'd like to do some psychology for you today, a, a little bit of opinion scholarship, going back to a uh, gentleman we read before, Edward Ettinger, one of Carl Jung's pupils, depth psychologist, love him, love him, really, can't speak highly enough about it. Um, I'll address the... Um, uh, the fact that we've been on a little bit of a hiatus, so you haven't seen new episodes of the Two Tongues podcast coming out lately. Uh, I mentioned um, some weeks ago um, sort of some tragic news in Kyle's life and uh, some changes in my own. It's made it a little bit more difficult. Um, I don't know when Kyle and I will get back together for one of these, but I'm hoping it will be soon. I'll have to uh, have to ask him about it, but hoping it'll be soon. <clears throat> in the meantime, you're going to get more of me. I hope that doesn't disappoint um, today we're going to do a little episode that I'm titling Ego and Archetype, Returning to Edinger. Um, so again, we did Edinger before. If you remember, it was uh, about the Olympian gods and goddesses, um, and they had um, psychological interpretations of the images of the gods and goddesses and the uh, attributes, qualities that, that the gods and goddesses were supposed to have. That was really, really interesting, um, exploring kind of a psychological understanding of the ancient classical, you know, um, pantheons. Um, then I read this little book, Ego and Archetype, which is what we're going to talk about today. Also, Ed Edinger, and it, it just blew the top off of my head. Uh, it'll I'll probably get two or three episodes out of this book. It's just too much to talk about all today. Um, because I liked it so much, and I like the other one so much, I picked up this little number. Uh, it's called The Psyche in Antiquity by Edinger, and it's going to talk the same way that he did when he was talking about the Greek gods. And what we're going to see today, we'll talk a little bit about the Bible and some of the ancient Greek myths. Uh, he does that with ancient Greek philosophy, pre-Socratic philosophy. Um, I haven't cracked it open yet, but I am super stoked to see what he has to say about that. Uh, we did some episodes on uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers and also on Plato um, early on, in, I think in season one and two. Um, so you guys can go back and listen to those. They're really interesting. Um, without further ado, let's get into ego and archetype. So in the first part of this book, really the whole book, there's this idea from Carl Jung, this, this term, individuation. And if you study psychology, you probably have heard that word, along with other things like repression, like projection, like all these sorts of things that you hear about when people talk about psychology. 
individuation is one of them, and he describes it in the book as a process in which the ego becomes increasingly aware of its origin from and dependence on the archetypal psyche. So I know that's a mouthful. If you're not familiar with depth psychology, that may sound like gobbledygook, but let me do my best to explain. Um, Carl Jung and, and his pupils believed, Sigmund Freud as well, that the psyche, the, the, the human mind, consciousness, or whatever you want to call it, the whole kit and caboodle that we might just call psyche, uh, it's made up of different parts. And that's easy enough for un- us to understand when we think about the difference between um, the conscious parts of our, of our day-to-day experience and the unconscious parts. So you may think you're not aware of the unconscious parts, so they don't really exist. Maybe Young was full of shit and, it, and there isn't such a thing as an unconscious. Um, if you listen to this podcast, you probably have enough reasons to um, see the error in that sort of a thinking. But, uh, but truthfully, there, there are things that we don't understand, lots of things about ourselves. There are things that are instinctual, as an example. Um, sometimes there are behaviors, motivations, things that we don't really try to do, but they happen. These are um, largely unconscious things that happen. Um, good examples of this are, where do my interests come from? I don't really get to pick and choose what I'm interested in. Something just is interesting to me, or it's not. So what's that about? Something unconscious going on there. Something reaches out, shines out to me. This is what... Um, the, the alchemist, and, and when Jordan Peterson talks about the alchemist, he brings this up. They talk about the god Mercury, the Roman god Mercury, but they, they'll use the word Mercurius, the spirit of Mercury. And it's the thing that flickers and flashes. If you've ever seen Mercury, you know, that metal, liquid metal, you know how it looks. It catches your eye. It's, you know, you can almost play with it forever, like sitting watching a fire burn. Something about it is appealing. And this is what our interests are like. You know, something brings our attention to it. We don't have any control over that. What is that? Something unconscious. Um, our fantasies are like that. You know, things that just pop into your head. Where'd that idea come from? Where'd that image come from? Where'd that connection come from? That kind of a thing. And there's all kinds of unconscious processes in our body. You know, the fact that we're breathing, that our heart is beating, that our temperature is being regulated. All that stuff happens automatically. You don't have to do it. You don't have to will it. It just happens. These are unconscious things. So our experiences are full of evidence of an unconscious part of our psyche. Um, This archetypal psyche that we just heard about, this is something that... Young called the collective unconscious. He, he called them transpersonal in the same way that Edinger talked about the Greek gods being transpersonal experiences, um, experiences that all people have, motivations or instincts that all people have that can get triggered. Um, and, uh, and because those feelings, experiences happen to us, but we see it happening to other people in very similar ways, manifesting in similar ways, then we can see you know, the spirit of Eros, the spirit of Ares, the spirit of whoever, this God that, that represents that, that motivation, um, that it strikes you, it strikes me, it strikes, you know, somebody, I, a stranger I see in the street in a similar way. So it's transpersonal. It's something that exists in me, but also seems to exist in them, like a spirit flowing from me to them, something like that. So this is this archetypal psyche and 
you might just want to know, what does that really mean, the archetypal psyche? And, and I'll read the next quote. It goes, Jung's most far-reaching discovery is the collective unconscious or archetypal psyche. So this is the same thing. The collective unconscious, if you've heard that word. This is what he means when he says archetypal psyche. He says the individual psyche is not just a product of personal experience. It also has a transpersonal dimension, which is manifested in universal patterns and images, such as are found in all the world's mythologies. The archetypal psyche unifies the various archetypal contents. This is the archetype of wholeness, which Jung has termed the self. So what does all that mean? When he talks about this collective unconscious, this is something that he calls transpersonal, and that means it's a part of me, but it's a part of you. It's a part of all of us and everyone who's ever lived, and everyone who ever will live. This collective unconscious is something that we share. It's just a very hard thing to wrap your, your mind around. We all feel like we're individual selves, we're, we're island universes, like Huxley said. We don't have access to each other's you know, personal experience, or we're very private, to, you know, closed and in, 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 you know, off to one another. We don't have a way of really sharing each other's experiences. And yet, there's this transpersonal dimension to our, to our lives. It's strange, it's hard to understand. So when he says that these, the archetypal psyche is the shared domain and the archetypes, these are the contents inside this symbolic place we're going to call the archetypal psyche uh, or the collective unconscious, that you've got archetypes in there. Young will talk about them. He'll say, you know, you've got the anima or the animus. You've got the shadow. Um, you know, all these, diff these various um, um, images that exist in the collective unconscious. This is why we see in mythology all around the world similar characters appearing, gods and goddesses with similar uh, attributes, with similar um, um, associations, uh, that sort of thing. You know, a god or a goddess that maybe um, in different cultures is um, uh, responsible for the same types of things. Maybe it's a goddess and she's responsible for love and war. Like, that's weird. What's that about? But it's not just in this culture. You see that same goddess responsible for love and war in this culture, in that culture, in this culture. They have differences, different names, different get-ups, but there's some similarities, and that's weird. And this is, so, and this is an idea of cultural productions from the human mind. doesn't matter what, what era they're from doesn't matter what culture they belong to. They're coming up with similar ideas, concepts, images. Um, that's weird. How do you explain that unless there's something transpersonal? There's something about being a human being that allows these kind of ideas to form in this particular way. There's no other explanation for it. It has to be transpersonal. So you've got all these archetypes that exist in the collective unconscious. And what he's saying here is the archetypal psyche or the collective unconscious is something like a container for all of these archetypes, uh, all of these motivational forces, these instinctual forces that we all seem to share, but nobody understands where they come from, what they are. Um, he, so again, this container of all, all, all of the archetypes this is something that we can call the collective unconscious or the archetypal psyche. Those are both mouthfuls. And what Jung does is he says, let's call this the self. 
This is the archetype of wholeness. It's the thing that includes all of the archetypes. It's the entire transpersonal dimension that we share as human beings. We're going to call that the self. And what's interesting about that, so you can think about the self with a capital S. It's like you, what you are, everything you are, even the things you don't really recognize or understand, even these unconscious things, right, that you don't know exactly, but they are part of you. You take that in uh Connection with your ego, which which is the stuff that you do connect with, you do associate with. When you say myself or I or your name, what you mean is your ego in almost all situations. You mean the part of your being that thinks and believes it's its individual, you know, standing on its own uh, entity. Me, different from the world, different from everyone else. I associate that thing with my face and my memories, my preferences, my history. You know, all the things about me, that's my ego. But we are more than just the ego, right? We have this transpersonal, unconscious part of ourselves. That's not ego, that's something else, right? So if you take the ego and this something else together, that's everything then. That's the transpersonal and the personal together. That's the unification of opposites, it's everything, the whole kit and caboodle, the wholeness Young is going to call the self. And what's interesting to me about this is that this whole process of individuation that we talked about is the process of coming to understand you as a, the self, as more than just your ego. So, and, and the self correlates with this idea that we call generally God. This is why these transpersonal um, elements pop up in our history, in our culture, in religious ways. That's why they show up in our mythology, in our religious stories. They're not showing up in any other part of our experience, but in this particular domain where we believe, you know, in the divine and the supernatural and, you know, things that aren't, that are, you know, there's something more like the unconscious. Like we were trying to describe that earlier. And so these are the connections here. There are, there are, important, powerful parts of our experience that aren't material or physical. They're transpersonal. All right, we'll push on. He says, the ego is the seat of subjective identity. Right? Remember what I said? The ego, that, that's something you associate with your face, your name, your history, your dreams, your wants, your fantasies, all the things about you in particular. Your ego. That's your subjective identity. And for many people, that's their only identity. They don't, they don't have the capacity to imagine that there are more than that. I think that may be most people. It was certainly me for most of my life. Then he says, while the self is the seat of objective identity. Right? So the ego is your subjective identity. The self is an objective identity. That's interesting. So if you're somebody who believes that you are only your ego and there's nothing more to you than that, the things you attach to yourself and believe to, to belong to you exclusively. If you don't have the ability to expand beyond that, then you only have a subjective identity. Now, an, an, an objective identity is something that, you know, just like the difference between subjective and objective implies... It's something that's not contingent upon your, your ego. It's not contingent upon your subjective identity. It's something 
deeper, something more fundamental. So the self is your objective identity. And I think this is, this is what gives Kyle fit so much, and I think he has a point. But when I say things like, I am God, um, this is what gives him fits, what, what it's difficult for him to understand or wrap his brain around. What I'm referring to when I say, I am God, is exactly this, my objective identity. I'm not discounting that I have a subjective identity. And I'm not suggesting that my objective identity is God in and of itself. But it is God. All right, so the ego is the subjective identity. The self is the objective identity. He says the self is most simply described as the inner deity and is identical with the imago Dei. That's a Latin phrase. It just means the image of God. That's what we hear, of course, from the, from the Bible. We're made in the image of God. And so what he's saying here is the self is that, that thing that's being referenced in the Bible. When man was created in the image of God. So the self is this inner deity, the God within, something like that. Then he says this. It is expressed by symbolic images called mandalas. I don't know if you have any experience of mandalas. I think this is really largely a Buddhist cultural phenomenon. But this is an image. It's used for prayer. It's used for meditation. Um, it's usually a circle form. And it's got a cross or a square in it at some point. It seems to have a center. And it's, it's divided into usually four sections. And, the, and it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. But that's the general uh, concept of a mandala. So what is that about? He says there are also associated themes that go along with these mandalas or the idea of the self. And these are things like wholeness, totality, the union of opposites, the point where God and man meet, where transpersonal energies flow into personal life, protective structures capable of bringing order out of chaos, the central source of life energy, the fountain of our being, which is most simply described as God. So all this is a whole cloud of associations here. The mandala, um, you know, the, the place where heaven and earth meet, where God and man meet, where the conscious and unconscious meet, where order and chaos meets, this sort of a thing. And it's where, it's where life flows into being, you know, or where being flows out of non-being. It's this very... Um, di yeah, very noetic and difficult to put into words, sort of a sort of an experience. Um, but if you if you're a fan of the podcast and you've listened to this, when we talk about the Ouroboros, when we talk about the union of opposites and this paradox that goes along with mystical experience, uh, with this uh, with this at 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 one minute or becoming one with the universe or one with God kind of experience that people, religious people, but also uh, non-religious people, uh, claim to have. All right, he says, on the basis of mythological material, Neumann, and if you remember, that's uh, Carl Jung's kind of star pupil, um, depicted the original psychic state prior to the birth of ego as the Ouroboros, using the circular image of the tail eater to represent the primordial self out of which the ego is born. So this idea of this self, uh, Eric Neumann um, illustrates using this very ancient religious image 
of a t- of a serpent swallowing its tail, and it's it's a really straightforward image. You look at this circle, and you know the circle, of course, is a symbol of eternity. There's no beginning or end, so that's built into it. It's also swallowing its own tail. It's it's sort of it's sort of being born from itself. It's the self created. It's the image of the complete self created thing that we would very easily understand as God, the Ouroboros. This is the self, um, you know, in, in an image. He says, we must inevitably make a distinction between ego and self, which contradicts our definition of self. The fact is, the concept of self is a paradox. It is simultaneously the center and the totality. right? Simultaneously the ego and the self. So what he's saying is when we talk about this idea, when we talk about, about God, the self, we have to make a distinction between ego, that's, that's you know, you and I, and God, you know, creation and creator in religious terms. We have to. We have to make this distinction between self and ego to talk about the difference between, what, between the potential and the actual. God and, and material reality. Um, we, it's, not, it's not obvious to us that they're the same thing. So we talk about them separately. I am what I am. Separate and, and apart from everything else. It's very difficult to understand you as a wholeness, as, as the universe is one thing. You know, it's very difficult because it's not, it's not obvious that that's the case. The ego makes it very difficult to, to come to that conclusion. So there's a paradox here where we, we have to talk about the self, which again is something that includes the ego. But we have to talk about the ego and self as though they were separate things, when in reality they aren't. And so that's, you get this paradoxical thing that's going on. And maybe it's a problem with language. We, we see this all the time when we, when we talk about the things that we talk about on the podcast. But I've said before, and I'll say now, that when you encounter paradox, when we're talking about things like this, or like ontological sort of ideas of, of you know, origins and, and creation and all, and all these sort of related religious ideas, when we come to this paradox, I think that it points to something deeply, deeply true. Something that may, maybe isn't logical or reasonable, something that doesn't... How do I put it? Something that you want to dismiss is wrong. And to do so would be a giant mistake. Like it's contrary to your own reason and logic. And yet, there's something in that paradox that, that begs for exploration. You know? It's a mystery. And mysteries are alluring to us. And this is like the greatest of mysteries. All right, he says, In the Ouroboric state, nothing exists but the self. The ego germ is present only as a potentiality. Ego and self are one, which means there is no ego. So again, we're, we're understanding this image of the conscious and unconscious together, the ego being the conscious part, uh, and then and you know it being one thing with the unconscious part. That's the totality of it: the conscious part and the unconscious part. That's the totality of it. 
he says, in the Ouroboric state, in that original state before consciousness, if we just imagine the self in and of itself, God in and of itself, he's, he's saying that the potentiality for the ego to, to come into existence is there within that, that Ouroboros, within, that, within the self, within God. When, when the ego is only a potentiality, when it, has, when it hasn't been brought into consciousness, then the ego and, and the unconscious, the conscious and the unconscious, are basically one thing at this point. The ego and the self are one thing. And so there really isn't an ego. There's the p- potential for an ego to, to come into existence, but it doesn't exist yet. And so the ego, whatever it is, it's, it's genuinely one with God. It doesn't know itself as anything but God. And this is, according to these depth psychologists, something like the state that we're born into. Like a newborn infant or a fetal consciousness is something like this. Something that hasn't yet developed its ego. It hasn't stepped out on its own um, and, and uh, established itself as an independent consciousness. And so in a way it doesn't exist at all. He says, the ego's relation to the self corresponds very closely to man's relation to his creator. Psychological development can be understood in terms of the changing relation between ego and self. This actually, I think, is a really interesting point. And there's some more examples in the book about this, but it's like psychologically how we see ourself in relation to God corresponds to the level of our psychological development. So there's a lot of like analogies that are made in the book between the state of mind of a child and the state of mind of primitive human beings that lived a long time ago. The idea being that the our ancient ancestors, they weren't as psychologically developed as us. They didn't have the benefit of... Uh, all those years of evolution between us and them, um, their, their lives were more difficult, you know, more hand-to-mouth survival. So they didn't have the luxury or leisure to meditate or to philosophize. And so the state of their existence was psychologically simpler. Now, if you're born in this Ouroboric state where there's really no difference between you and God, and you slowly kind of grow into this ego which separates you from the idea of God, more and more and more as you, as you develop, then you might think that primitive people had a state of mind something something like that, where they believed that they were more closely linked to God than maybe we think today. They weren't yet separated as much from this experience of being one with God, this Ouroboric experience. And if you go back and you look at primitive religion, you see something like that. As an example, animism. Animism is basically the prehistoric, I want to say it's the prehistoric religion, but there's not any continuity between them from culture to culture. But in general, these ancient tribal people believed um, 
many if not most in prehistory that the world was imbued by spirits that the world is alive in the same way that you and I are that we are imbued by a spirit and that's what makes us alive and the whole cosmos is imbued by spirits that makes them alive. You can think about tribal people in Africa, Native Americans, uh, Aboriginal Australians, um, think people like that who say things like the spirit of the river, um, the spirit of the sky, of the storm. Uh, the Shinto people in Japan, the, the religion in Japan of their kind of ancient tribal ancestors, very much the same. The kami, the spirits, of they existed within uh, the natural world, within human beings. And and so the idea here is everything is, is made alive by by being possessed by, by a spirit. And there's not a distinction in this ancient state of mind between what that spirit is, right? The spirit of the sea, and the spirit in the sky, the spirit in me. That's God, the great spirit. That, that is the same thing. And the more sophisticated we, we become culturally, um, psychologically, the more distant we get from this idea, this animistic idea, and we start to think about um, the spirit of the sky as a standalone God. It's not the same spirit that's in me. It's this spirit far above and beyond me, more powerful and abstract and, 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 and so forth. It's its own thing, greater than I. I'm nothing in comparison to the spirit of the gods. So you see more distance there. And that's the attitude that you would see in classical religions, the ancient Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, that, and so forth, the Babylonians, the, all that. So what's interesting here is that psychological development expresses itself in our religion, in our mythologies, like how we understand ourselves, the, you know, the relationship between the conscious part and the unconscious part, the personal and the transpersonal, the mortal and the divine, how we understand our relationship there translates into our religious traditions, how we understand God. And that's strange. How we come to terms with our transpersonal and unconscious element directly translates into how we understand God, religion, the meaning of life, um, all of that, all of the things that are associated with our, our mythological traditions. I think that's very interesting. All right, he says, the task of the first half of life involves ego development. The second half requires a surrender of the ego. All right, so this is the idea of and just think about your childhood. Think about growing up, wanting to become your own person. That's how people say it. And what does that mean? It's like you, you have a bunch of experiences. You, things make impressions on you, good and bad. Again, an unconscious thing. You don't have any idea how that happens or, or how, you, how you judge things, good or bad. You just do. The things that appeal to you, you kind of attach yourself to. The things that don't, you sort of push away from yourself. And what you're doing is you're picking and choosing and building and creating this thing. All of the things that you like, all of the things that you are attached to, all the things that interest you, that compel you, um, and you, you gather them up, and that becomes your personality. I'm the guy that likes X, Y, and Z. I'm the guy that hates, you know, A, B, and, and C, whatever it might be. This is this, this is this 
ego development stage where you want to become your own person, right? You don't want to be like everybody else. It's very largely attached to the, to the sexual maturity and trying to stand out from the crowd so that you can procreate. You want to become different from everybody else. And that's the first half of life, this process of becoming your own unique thing. That's all ego development. But then he says the second half of your life is the process of surrendering all of that. So if you're young, you know, if you're younger than the age of 30, you probably have no idea what the second half of your life is going to bring, what that means to surrender your ego. But it's coming. He goes on, he says, alternating between ego self-union and ego self-separation seems to occur repeatedly throughout the life of the individual. Later, a third stage appears when the ego-self axis reaches consciousness, characterized by a dialectic relationship between ego and self. This is individuation. This is what he means by individuation. So that may sound like gobbledygook, but let me try to help you here. When he says alternating between ego-self union and separation, he's talking about this process of pulling away from or separating yourself from the unconscious part or the God part. Of your, of your being, and then coming closer to it and pulling away from it, and that there's some sort of a dance going on like this that we do throughout our lives. And it's necessary and appropriate, and, and it's perfectly natural, and that's what human beings do. That's part of our psychological development. And this process allows us to understand that there is a part of ourselves beyond our ego. There is a part of ourselves that's kind of out of reach, kind of unknown, and that's weird. What is that mystery? And the pull towards that mystery is what Jung is going to call individuation. All right, so another psychological word comes up, inflation. This is not, we're not talking about inflation in the context of finance here. In psychology, inflation, have you heard that word? So let me describe it using uh, Edinger. He says, inflation describes a state in which something small, the ego, has arrogated its, itself the qualities of something larger, the self. So we are born in a state of inflation. Right? We're born into this state of, we don't have an ego, right? So we, we, we understand ourselves to be everything, the totality, to be God itself. And that's what, when you're holding your newborn infant who's looking through you, who has no context of space and time and doesn't know what's going on, and the baby's just looking through you, and you look down at that child and something in your heart, especially if it's your child, it's in awe of the thing that you're holding, the thing that is helpless and fragile and barely hanging on to life. But you look down in that baby's eyes and you see something that, in my own experience, I'll say, recalls or brings to mind God. Like I'm looking at pure potential. And that's a very good analogy for what I, how I understand God. Pure potential. So we're born in a state of inflation. He says, in earliest infancy, the latent ego is in complete identification with self. All is self. And he says something interesting to clarify. He says, the self is born. The ego is made. Right? The ego has to come into being. 
when we're born, we're already, we already have the basis for, the potential for what will become our ego, what will become ordinary consciousness. And the basis of that, whatever this little newborn child is, it's, it's alive, but it's not conscious exactly, not like you and I. It's living unconsciousness. And that's something like what God is. I know it's poetic, but if you can understand at all what I mean by that, you're on to something. The self is born, but the ego is made. He says, since the self is the totality of being, the ego identified with the self experiences itself as a deity. So I know none of us remember what it was like to be a fetus or a newborn, newborn baby, but you can imagine whatever the experience is of that thing, is something like the experience of God. I have no idea what that means. But I think there's something to it. He said, this original state of unconscious wholeness and perfection. Right, so something that is self-created, self-sufficient. And we've talked about this before, but the fetus experiences itself like that. It doesn't realize that that's not coming from it, that it's, it's nutrition is coming from its mother, it's warmth is coming from its mother, you know, it, that it's being taken care of by something external. It doesn't, it's not conscious of that. It just experiences itself as being self-sufficient and self-created. What must that be like, that first experience, the unconscious experience? I mean, it, it sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? While we're talking about this original state of perfection, this brings me to the next section, which we're going to call unconscious Eden. Right? Eden. This is, this is the paradise, the state of perfection in the beginning. And Edinger begins like this. He says, Many myths depict the original state of man as perfection or paradise. For instance, in the Greek myth of the four ages of man, the original age was the golden age. Hesiod says, The golden race of man lived like gods, without sorrow and free from toil. They had all good things, for the fruitful earth unforced bore them fruit abundantly. They dwelt in ease and peace. So according to the ancient Greeks, there was four different races of man that were created to get us from the beginning to the modern era. Each race had, were, were destroyed and remade, uh, that sort of a thing. And the original race was perfect, the golden race. And they lived like the gods. No sorrow, no toil, no work. Everything came to them abundantly, freely, unforced. They dwelt in ease and in peace. And doesn't that sound to you like the experience of what a fetus must have? In the warmth of their mother's womb, all their needs being satisfied. No pain, no toil, nobody's asking you for anything, no responsibilities. You don't have to do anything. You just exist, and everything you need is there. Doesn't that seem a little bit similar to what Hesiod is describing here? In this mythological story of the golden age of man? Edinger says, 
the psyche was originally in a state of oneness with self-sufficiency that is equivalent to deity itself. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, to be self-sufficient and self-created, that's essentially, by definition, what God is. That which needs no creator, the self-created, and that which needs nothing to sustain it, the eternal is self-sufficient, entirely enclosed as a system, self-sufficient in and of itself. The beginning and end, the alpha and the omega, you know, that sort of a thing. And isn't that what this early psychological experience of uh, is? The earliest psyche is something like that. Like what a, what a fetal consciousness must be like. Self-sufficient. It's not obvious. It's not, it's not conscious of anything. It's not obvious to it why it doesn't need anything. It just doesn't. And he says, Children share with primitive man the identification of ego with the archetypal psyche and the outer world. Inner and outer are not at all distinguished. So this is the idea, again, another psychological phrase, unconscious projection. So a good example, a good mythological example is uh, the ancient people would look up at the sky and they would see the stars. And human beings are pattern recognition machines anyway. We start to see here that there are patterns in the stars in the sky. We come up with this idea of constellations. Um, but it's more than that. It's not just patterns in the sky that we're going to use for navigation and, and you know astrology and things like that. That all, that all were offshoots of something more primitive. Human beings looked up at the sky. They saw something they didn't understand. They were in awe of a great mystery, of the eternal black space, of the glimmering shining stars. No idea what any of that is. And what they did was they saw the realm of the gods there. They saw the gods themselves there. So that's what the constellations became. They're all named after gods, after all. And that's projection. It's things... That are not that you're not conscious of. We have this tendency, and I don't know why, but it's natural to project those unconscious things into the world around us, into uh, things that are unknown that we can actually experience. He says the child experiences himself quite literally as the center of the universe. The mother, at first, answers that demand. However, before long, the world necessarily begins to reject the infant's demands. At this, the original inflation begins to dissolve. He is exiled from paradise, and permanent separation occurs. Okay. When he says that a, a child at first experiences itself as the center of the universe, there's a lot of children that never grow out of that, that become adults and still believe themselves to be the center of the universe. But the way you are as a child, in the eyes of your mother, probably your parents both, but specifically in the eyes of your mother, you're her whole world. Anybody with a half-decent relationship with their mother, ask them, what, what am I to you? And they're going to tell you, my whole world. Your children are your whole world. You become the center of their world. Now, that makes you the center of the universe, of course, and everything you need 
your mother is going to provide for you. And that's certainly true in the fetal state like we talked about. But even as an infant, that's the case. Your mother is at your beck and call, answering every cry, every demand. So, you're, you know, you are God and your mother, you know, and, and all the people taking care of you are something like your priests, you know. You know, they're waiting on you. Then he says, before long, that's not really possible anymore, right? The mother's job is not to dote on you and take care of you your entire life. You have to be able to stand on your own. So the mother will stop those, will pull back and, and allow you to become self-sufficient. And what happens psychologically is that you find yourself no longer a god, right? And the, this is where the inflation begins to dissolve, he says. This is where you can no longer psychologically consider yourself to be one with the self because you're not god anymore. Suddenly you're being required to, you know, to do things on your own. I, I, I don't know if it's, a, if it's appropriate here, but I, I can't help but, uh, but think of um, an Adam Sandler movie. Uh, boy, what's it called? Where he, adop- he, he adopts the kid. Uh, Big Daddy? Remember that? I can wipe my own ass. You remember that? So at some point we have to wipe our own asses, right? And that's when we realize that we're no longer what we thought we were. We're not the God we thought we were. And this is symbolically, this is being exiled from paradise, right? Being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He says, what follows the state of original inflation is presented in the Garden of Eden myth. The Garden of Eden has certain features of a mandala, with four rivers flowing through it and a tree of life in the middle. So it's the image of a mandala, right? You've got the circle with the center. You've got the division into four, the quaternity, as Jung would say, um, by these four rivers that flow from it. So that's interesting. He says the mandala garden is the image of the self, right? Representing the ego's original oneness with deity the initial unconscious state of being at one with oneself. So you might think of some words from the Bible, Adam walked with God, right? Adam was with God, and God was with Adam. It's very difficult. I mean, they're as close as as God and man are as close as they're ever going to be in the biblical tradition up until the story of Jesus, It's paradisal. Eden is paradisal because consciousness has not yet appeared. And you see that, of course, in the, in the Adam and Eve story. When the, when the fruit of the tree of knowledge is, is consumed, Adam and Eve recognize that they're naked. You remember that? They, they, are, they are brought into consciousness at that point. And what does consciousness bring? What does the word self-consciousness make you think of? Anxiety, knowledge of the future and death, knowledge of our own imperfections, all the stuff that we might have been unconscious of. As soon as, as soon as we're conscious, we can't avoid those things anymore. And so becoming consciousness brings a tremendous amount of pain and anxiety. It's a recognition that one day you will die, and so will your children. A lot of anxiety there. The realization that you're not perfect. 
And Edinger goes on, he says, another feature indicating original wholeness is the creation of Adam out of Eve. Excuse me, Eve out of Adam. Adam's separation into masculine and feminine is a process which is equivalent to his separation from the paradise garden. See, so there's a so there's a duplication here, a repeating pattern, right? Eve gets removed from Adam, separated from Adam, using his rib in the story. And then Adam and Eve get separated from the garden. So you see this, this separation. And it's funny because if you go back and you read the creation story in the Bible, you see the same thing just a couple chapters before. You see, you know, the, the light and the darkness being separated apart, the heavens and the earth being separated apart. So creation is, is a process of separation. That's interesting. It says something deep and profound. If, if creation is separation, it's, it's impossible for us to think of something coming from nothing. Right? Because what is being brought into existence isn't being poof created. It's being separated from something that already exists. The thing that is eternal, that's all it always is, the great I am, God, that thing gets separated into being. It's not something from nothing. It's something from everything, something from potentiality, something particular, right, from something universal. I think that that's subtle, but, it, but it's an important distinction. There is no something from nothing. There is no poof into being. There's always been whatever the thing is that we're calling God. All right, he says, The myth depicts the birth of consciousness as a crime which alienates man from God. His original preconscious wholeness, right? To become conscious is to separate yourself from what you were before you were conscious. When you were the self, all by itself. When you were God and nothing else. You were unconscious, and now you're conscious. So there becomes this tension. There becomes this division between the conscious and the unconscious. This alienation. And that's the image of Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden. Alienated from the place where God is. He says, consciousness is the original sin, the root cause of all evil in human nature. The serpent's temptation symbolizes the birth of the ego. The effect of this birth is to alienate the ego from its origins. It now moves into a world of suffering, conflict, and uncertainty. And you probably remember what they said of, for Adam and Eve when they left the garden. I can't remember exactly, but they said um, they'll have to toil uh, for the rest of their life in pain and suffering. That's a consequence of becoming conscious, of being separated from God, from the unconscious. All right, Edinger says, Consciousness has created a counterpole to natural, instinctive, animal function. So you see there's a difference. Talking about instincts is, is the easiest way to understand what the unconscious means. But a really good way of 
visualizing that. If you've ha- if you have a pet or experience with animals, um, you know, the more experience you have with animals, the the more this is going to make sense. We have this instinctive animal part um, of our experience. Those things that are instinctive that we're doing without controlling it, without willing it. These automatic sort of things like breathing and. Uh, beating our heart, regulating our temperature, but even things like the desire for procreation. It's a very instinctive part of being human. It's a very animalistic part of being human. It's like one of very few things, like maybe rage, jealousy, and this this horniness, this, this procreative impulse. Those are things that we associate very much with the animal world. Not so much with human beings as with the animal world. These like belong instincts belong to the animal world and we forget that we are we are animals right we have this connection to these creatures that that don't have to think or judge or plan they simply respond right they have their they have naturally built-in responses to environmental uh, events and, and conditions and they just live that their experience is cause and effect determinist cause and effect only and that maybe that's how we were for a large part of our evolutionary history until consciousness emerged and suddenly we can we can weigh our options we can make judgments and decisions it's we you know we can counter our instincts with our rational you know with our rational mind our reason our judgments So he says, duality, dissociation, and repression have been born in the human psyche. Consciousness, in order to exist in its own right, must, initially at least, be antagonistic to the unconscious. What is he he saying? He's saying, in order for us to become our own thing, apart from God, where we you know, where our origin was, the, apart from this unconscious origin. If we want to become something conscious and independent from that, we have to be antagonistic. We have to pull and fight like hell to break free from this unconscious place. We must disobey God, right? We must eat the fruit we're not supposed to eat. That's what the story is telling us. We have to be antagonistic to the unconscious, to the place of our origins. We have to become antagonistic to God, the way Adam and Eve were um, in the story. Then he says, in Greek mythology, there is a parallel to the Garden of Eden in the myth of Prometheus. In summary, Prometheus presides over dividing the meat of sacrificial victims between the gods and men. Previously, there had been no need for the division because men and gods ate together. But Prometheus tricked Zeus, and and angered by this, Zeus withholds fire from man. But Prometheus slips into heaven, steals the fire from the gods, and gives it to man. In punishment for this, Prometheus was chained to a rock, where every day a vulture tore at his liver, and every night it was healed again. So I don't know what stands out to you in this story, but the idea that there was a time when the sacrificial victims, uh, the sacrifices that were being made to the gods, didn't need to be divided between man and the gods because there was a time before when the gods and man ate together. 
there was a time when God and man were at the table together. Like this is like when Adam walked with God in paradise. Right? And something happened that changed that. And now in this case, Prometheus has to divide up the spoils, what goes to the gods and what goes to mankind. There was some fuckery going going on in this story, and uh, Prometheus tricks Zeus. I don't know if you guys know the story, but he he wraps up uh, uh, all the shitty meat and bones and things in all the fat to make it look appealing, and the other one he uh, made look less appealing. So Zeus picks the the more the more appealing bundle, and when he gets through the fat, he realizes that he got gypped, and uh, human beings ended up getting the the you know the, the best of it. Um, so this is this is what what Prometheus did that, that upset Zeus. But the punishment here is terrible suffering forever, getting his uh, liver torn out by the vulture every day. This is like what happens to Adam and Eve when they're forced to leave the garden. They're no longer getting everything they need you know, uh, without effort. They now have to toil in the dust of the earth and, and, and eat bread and, and have painful childbirth and all the things that we hear in the story. So you see, again, very, very different story from a very different part of the world, from a very different time. But it's the same story. Edinger says, The process of dividing the meat of the sacrificial animal between the gods and men represents the separation of the ego from the self. Right? The conscious from the archetypal unconscious. And this is just like the separation of Adam and Eve from the garden, the exile from paradise. Edinger says, We can note many parallels between the myths of Prometheus and the Garden of Eden. Zeus withholds fire. Yahweh withholds the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Both the fire and the fruit symbolize consciousness, which leads to a measure of independence from God. Just as Prometheus steals fire, Adam and Eve steal the fruit in disobedience to God. This willful act is the grasping for consciousness, which is symbolized as a crime. Prometheus is cursed with an unhealing wound, analogous to the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, and the suffering Adam and Eve met after they left the Garden. Suffering and death do not exist prior to the birth of consciousness. There is, no, there is no consciousness to experience them. See, this explains the tremendous nostalgia for the original unconscious state. In that state, one is free from all suffering. These myths say essentially the same thing because they are expressing the archetypal reality of the psyche and its course of development. In order to emerge, the ego is obliged to set itself up against the unconscious, out of which it came, and assert its autonomy. So we have to become antagonistic to God, to separate ourselves, to become something all by ourselves, standing on our own as a conscious being. And this is, this is a mythological way of describing a psychological process. Of, of our uh, formative unconscious psyche slowly becoming more and more conscious. And if you watch children develop and grow from infancy up to adulthood, you see it happen. 
you see the story playing out of Prometheus and Adam and Eve. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the alienated ego. I wanted to call this this chapter or section the line from uh, the Crow. I don't know if you guys have seen the Crow. Um, it's an old, older older flick, but there's a line in the Crow, and it says. Um, shout out to Matthew, by the way, because he loves this line. Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. Mother is the name of God on the lips and hearts of all children. So why do I say that? Well, let's find out. It begins like this. Stability of the ego depends in all stages of development on a living connection with the self. Now, there's some religious sounding language here to me. To say that you have to have a living connection with the self is to say you have to have a living connection with God. You have to have a relationship with God. I don't know about you, but I heard that growing up many, many, many times. You have to have a relationship with God. And people struggle with that. It's like hard to have a relationship with something when I pray and I never and I never, never get a response. Like how am I supposed to have a relationship with when it's one-sided? Like I'm bouncing all of my ideas off of a brick wall. It's a difficult thing to overcome. But the stability of the ego depends on this connection to the self, to the archetypal psyche. And Jung talks about this. He talks about how archetypes, they, they represent something like life energy, like a motivation. So when you feel motivated, it's very hard to describe. It does not, it's not exactly related to energy um, in the sense of, you know, the energy to move weights or the energy to, to, I mean, it is and it isn't. What I mean is I could be dog tired. I could have a headache. Uh, I, in normal circumstances, I could just say, yeah, I'm going to bed. But the right kind of motivation will, will allow me to put all of those things to, to the side. It's all, and in some cases, you know, it's almost like I, 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 at the flip of a switch, I'm not sick anymore. I'm not tired anymore. If I'm properly motivated, I have the energy to do something specific. Where does, what is that energy? And where does it come from? And how is it so powerful to make me forget that I'm tired and hungry and, and now I have to go do this thing you know, so, so much, so powerfully uh, compelled to do this thing? So you have to have a connection to the archetypes because the archetypes are going to give you energy, motivation to act in the world. And there's something supernatural about that. I can't, I can't, I don't understand it. I don't really understand it. But this is why it's important to have this relationship with God because God is the fount of all of the energy that you will need to live your life. All right, the next one says, Jung says, so here's a Jung quote, the ego stands to the self as the moved to the mover. The ego stands to the self as the moved to the mover. The self, or God, is the mover. The ego is the moved, okay? There's lots of stuff we've talked about about the idea of, of having an ego death or of emptying yourself of ego so that, so that what can then what can then come in to the place where ego was is God. There's been a lot of things we've talked about lately like that. You empty yourself or you, or you, 
orchestrate an ego disillusion. And then what you find in that experience is that what's left over is, is God. You're not empty when ego is gone. There's, there's not nothing there when ego has been destroyed. There's still something left, and it's still you. But that thing is not ego. It's something more. It's not the conscious. It's the unconscious, the self. It's God that's left over. So you have to, the idea is that you empty yourself so that God can, can exist there, or that you can find God in that emptiness. So the ego stands to the self as the moved to the mover. The self is an a priori existent out of which the ego evolves. That simply means the self is always there. It's there before the ego, and the ego comes from it. He says, thus, ego and self have a close structural affinity, illustrated by the Old Testament doctrine that man was created in God's image. Man, ego, was created in the image of the self of God. He says, also pertinent is the name ascribed to Yahweh. In the Bible, Yahweh is called I am. Right? And he says, the words I am also define the essential nature of the ego. Do they not? Right? When you say I am, whatever follows, right? Your name, I am, what are you describing? You're describing your ego or qualities of your ego. I am a carpenter. I am tall. I am Egyptian. I am, you know, Chris. I am whatever I am. That's all stuff describing my ego. Of course, in the, in the Bible, I am is not that. It's not the ego. It's the self. It's what the ego is, is founded upon. The bedrock of reality. That which makes the ego possible. So there's a conflation between God as the I am and ego as the I am. And that's intentional, he says. And you can see when the Bible describes human beings, egos, as being created in the image of God. You can see that understanding there. He says, connection between ego and self must be intact if the ego is to survive stress and grow. Right? You need to be able to tap into the archetypal uh, motivational forces and energy that, that, that uh, they provide. He says, this connection is the path of communication between the ego and the archetypal psyche, between the conscious and unconscious. And you may not think that you have any connection between the conscious and the unconscious, and that allows some people to, to believe that there is no such thing as an unconscious. And those people are often, you know, the atheist types or, or, or sympathetic to that. There is no God. There is no unconscious. Neither are explainable, you know, neither are correlate to reality in any way. That kind of attitude. But what about, what about things like, uh, there are people that will write this off too, but what about things like dreams? You have a dream and there's some meaningful message in the dream that applies to you to a problem you're dealing with in your life. Maybe a, maybe a book you're reading and a passage sort of jumps out at you and it's meaningful for you in a particular way. You know, at that time, it seems serendipitous, some you know unexplainable things like that. You, there are ways of looking at those things as the unconscious communicating with you, with with the conscious part of you. It's not like me speaking to you. But it's something like that. There's messages. There's implications. 
that that and your your values and your interests are much like that. You have no idea why they strike you and when they strike you. You have no control over that. So there is communication between the conscious and, un- and unconscious parts, parts of you. And I think if you think hard enough, and if you're open-minded enough, you'll see that that is the case. A gut feeling, you know, any kind of instincts like that give you examples of the unconscious speaking to you, of God speaking to you. It's not speaking in liter- literally in the, word, in, the, in the sense of the word speaking, but it is a, a communication. And that's weird, right? It's an unknown part of you communicating to you in some oblique way that's not obvious. It's weird. But the more you attune your ears to it, the more you practice it, the, more, the, the louder the voice becomes, the clearer the messages become. That sort of thing. I think this is what prayer and meditation is for. He says, Neumann suggested that the self may be experienced in childhood in relation to the parents, initially the mother. Neumann says, quote, the mother as the directing, protecting, and nourishing source represents the self. The self is inevitably experienced in projection onto the parents. Right? So you have this experience of being protected, of being... um, uh, nurtured, receiving all, having all your needs met, especially as a, as a fetal consciousness, that's the case. When you're born, your mother is doting on you, waiting on you hand and foot, so you have this extension of this experience of being self-sufficient. And once you become conscious enough to realize that the source of what's protecting and directing and nourishing you is coming from your mother, then you have an object on which you can project this idea of of the self sufficient of the uncreated of this of this entirely unconscious perfection that used to be your experience, and you project that onto your mother now. Your mother becomes like God, right? Mother, mother is the name of God on the lips and hearts of all children. And then he says, and by the way, um, we see this. I mean, we see this in religion. In very obvious ways, uh, when when a Christian talks about God, he says, "Our Father, right? Our Father who art in heaven." The 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 ancient Neolithic people believed that that God was the Great Mother, right? The All Father, the Sky Father, the Great Mother, Mother Gaia. We see the the projection onto our parents. And then that gets abstracted into these uh, these abstract parents, these parental figures, these the great God and the great goddess. All right, he says, alienation is necessary for awareness of the self. Jung says, the experience of the self is always a defeat for the ego. The experience of the self is always a defeat for the ego. So when the ego is defeated, subdued, emptied, then you have an experience of the self. And this is what I mean about them being antagonistic to each other. The ego has to fight to free itself from God. Right? And when the ego is defeated, God comes back. So alienation is necessary to become aware of the self. Then he says... 
The classic symbol for alienation is the image of the wilderness. And it is here, characteristically, that some manifestation of God is encountered. This is most likely to occur when the ego has exhausted its own resources and is aware of its essential impotence by itself. Right, so who goes, who goes off into the wilderness? Moses. And what does he encounter? A burning bush. You know, Jesus goes off into the wilderness, and what does he encounter? You know, the, 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 you know, the angel Lucifer coming to him and tempting him, right? So it's when you go out into the wilderness as a symbol here, when you're alienated from God, when you're out there all by yourself, and you realize how insufficient you are by yourself. Then you start to seek for more beyond that because you need more. Yourself, your ego is insufficient. He says, it is impossible for the ego to experience the self as long as the ego is unconsciously identified with the self. Oh, so see, you can't come to know that God exists if you believe that you are God already. You're not going to look for God. You're not going to search for God because you already believe yourself to be that thing. So you have to be antagonistic in the beginning. He says, this explains the need for the alienation experience as a prelude to the religious experience. Right? You have to separate yourself from God. This is why every teenager thinks they're an atheist. You have to separate yourself from God. Why? Because once there's enough separation, then you can see it, then you know it exists. You have to separate yourself from it in order to encounter it, in order to have a religious experience. So this another paradoxical sort of thing. You have to have this alienation, dissociation, or separation from God. And the reason to have the separation, paradoxically, is to be able to have a conscious reunification. To be able to consciously understand that the thing that, that you separated yourself from, that's you. It's been you all along. You are God, as I've said. All right, he goes on. He says, at a certain point in psychological development, the ego becomes aware of a transpersonal center. Jung describes this. When a summit of life is reached, when the bud unfolds, and from the lesser the greater emerges, then, as Nietzsche says, one become two, and the greater figure, which one always was, but which remained invisible, appears to the lesser personality, with the force of a revelation. We can understand it as an encounter of the ego with the self. When one becomes two, and then you can, only when one becomes two, can you have this experience of, of the thing, of the one, of the thing that you are. You must become separate from it in order to encounter it. And that's how you become conscious of it. That's how you, that's how you have a revelation an encounter with God. He says, individuation is a process, not a realized goal. Each new level of integration must submit to further transformation. The ego's conscious encounter with the self promotes a state in which the ego is related to the self without being identified with it. So you have this separation, this sufficient distance, right? He says, out of this, there emerges dialogue 
between the conscious ego and the unconscious. Now, this, I think, is what my grandma and all these religious people in my life growing up meant when they told me that you must have a relationship with God. Or, that, or when they told me that they had a relationship with God. And here Edinger says, out of this separation emerges dialogue between the conscious and the unconscious. See, this is the relationship between you, the conscious, and God, the unconscious. And both of those things are within you. And that's, that's, the, that's one of this, these paradoxical you know, um, manifestations. In this relationship, Edinger says, a twofold split is healed. The split between conscious and unconscious. The split between subject and object. The dichotomy between outer and inner reality is replaced by a sense of a unitary reality. All is one. I am one with God, one with the universe. That sort of thing. He says, the original wholeness and oneness out of which we emerge, can now be recovered in part on a conscious level. So remember, when I was one with God initially, when I was Adam in the garden, when I was a fetal consciousness, before my, my ego, before my conscious uh, ego arose, I was one with God, but I was unconscious. I didn't know it. I was one with God and didn't know that I was one with God. And didn't know what God is. I just, I am, right? My experience as a fetus was the experience of being I am. This process of individuation allows me to have that or recover that experience of being one with God, of being I am. But having that be a conscious experience. He says he comes to realize that there is an autonomous inner directiveness separate from the ego and often antagonistic to it. So that's our encounter with God. He said, for the primitive, everything is saturated with psychic meaning and has hidden connections with transpersonal powers. The primitive, like the child, lives in a world that is continuous with himself. Perhaps this is the meaning of Jesus' saying, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the, so the primitives and the children see the world as continuous with themselves. Remember that animism idea I was talking about earlier? The spirit that makes me alive is the spirit that makes everything else manifest and alive. The rivers, the, the trees, other people... You know, we're all animated by, by the spirit. That's the world being continuous with myself. It's all one spirit. It's all one thing that's happening. And maybe when Jesus said we must become like little children, maybe this is what he meant. And that brings me to the last section here, which is called Waking to divine revelation. Waking to divine revelation. It goes like this. In the early stages of psychological development, God is hidden in the cleverest hiding place of all, in identification with one's own ego. This idea of the hidden God corresponds to the Gnostic myth 
of Sophia. The Gnostics, if you don't know, were an early Christian group. Sophia uh, is, is a word that means wisdom, but it was in the Gnostic tradition, it was a goddess figure. There's a book uh, called the Pistis Sophia, famous Gnostic text. Neither here nor there. Let me continue. Sophia, the divine wisdom, descended into matter. And then in the course of that descent, she became lost and imprisoned in matter, thus becoming the hidden God, the self hidden in identification with the ego. So imagine, so, so Sophia is, is associated with the Holy Spirit. So imagine just like when God breathes the Holy Spirit into the clay figure of Adam and Adam comes to life. Imagine this Sophia figure descending into the material world, inhabiting it. And when she does, she brings it to life. Just like when God breathed himself into Adam, he brought Adam to life. But then in doing so, Sophia forgets that she's... Uh, the Holy Spirit, that she, she forgets that she's God. She, she is imprisoned inside the matter and has also forgotten what she is. You know, she's now become alive and has no memories of what she is or how she got there. And this is something like, it's something like our experience. And this spirit, this Holy Spirit that comes down and, and, and breathes life into, into the world. Um, this is something that Jung called the anima mundi, the, the soul of the world. Uh, we talked about animism, so you can see that anima mundi that's in there. Um, he goes on, he says, psychological development is a redemptive process. The goal is to, is to redeem by conscious realization the hidden self hidden in unconscious identification with the ego. Remember, it's one thing to be, you know, an infant or, or a fetal consciousness and being really entirely unconscious. Then you're God, but you don't know you're God. He's saying that the redemptive process is the process of, of living, developing psychologically, so that you can separate yourself from that original um, oneness and consciously then remember that you are one with God. It's to, it's to make that conscious. And he calls that redemptive. Again, that's a religious word, redemptive, you know? Redemptive, re redeemed from what? From sin? We talked about that from the biblical perspective earlier. The origin of sin is, that in that Adam and Eve story, becoming conscious. So you redeem your the sin against God, which was pulling away from, from what you were, your oneness with God. Your sin is tearing yourself free from God and becoming your own conscious thing. To redeem yourself, then, is to reunify that, to bring it back together, the atonement, the at-one-ment. All right, then he says something tremendous. He says, a conscious encounter with the autonomous archetypal psyche is the discovery of God. Right? You have a conscious encounter with it. Not an unconscious one, like when you were a fetus. You, you have a conscious encounter with, with the archetypal psyche, with the self. That is the discovery of God. That is the proof of God. That is what I would say I had when I had my mystical experience that we've talked about on the podcast at, at nauseum. I discovered God. 
and I discovered it within myself, the last place I would have expected it to be. You know, what you, what you seek for the most, you'll find where you least expect it. It's one of those alchemical dictums. And Jung said, man doesn't find God because he doesn't look low enough. It's like, I'm not going to find God because I don't think I'm worthy of God. I, I certainly wouldn't look for God within myself. But you have to be able to do that. He said, after such an experience, he is no longer alone in his psyche and his whole worldview is altered. Okay. I love that. This is exactly how I felt and feel. When I had that mystical experience and I discovered that I am more than I thought I was, then I realized exactly what Edinger is saying here. I am not alone in my psyche any longer. It's not just that little ego voice in there. There's something else in there. The unconscious part, God is in there too. And I feel that way in my daily life. He says, individuation seems to be the innate urge of life to realize itself consciously. The innate urge of life to realize itself consciously. That reminds me of um, a book that I bought and never read. Uh, there's, <laughs> I'm going to, there's a um, um, physicist named Amit Gwasami. He wrote a book called The Self-Aware Universe. And he basically just describes, and other people have as well, that the universe um, whatever caused it, set into motion a process that allows the universe to become, to evolve into a being, you and I, that can recognize that we are the universe. It makes the universe conscious, right? The universe creates, evolves into a conscious being. So what I am then is the part of the universe that knows that it is, right? I am the part of the universe that knows the universe created me, that the universe exists, that there is a process of transformation going on, that there's something that is transforming, whatever that might be, you know. So we are the, the, the cosmos made aware, the self-aware universe, something like that. And that's what this sounds like to me. No longer alone in my psyche. Individuation seems to be the innate urge of life to realize itself consciously. Then he says, the transpersonal life energy uses human consciousness as a product of itself. Excuse me, a product of itself. As an instrument for its own self-realization. So the transpersonal life energy, we'll call that God. God uses human consciousness as an instrument for its own self-realization. The universe becoming aware that it exists, that it is. Isn't that amazing? God uses the cosmos, which have evolved into human beings who are conscious, the only creatures we're aware of that are. This is the pinnacle of the development of the cosmos. And what does that thing do? It, 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 it's conscious. It's aware. It knows that it is. So we are, we are God, the thing in the cosmos that can affirm the existence of God, of the cosmos. It's amazing. He says, A glimpse of this process gives one a new perspective on the vicissitudes of human life. 
And I think Jordan Peterson put that even better in Maps of Meaning when he said, exactly this allows us to recognize what he says is the cosmic significance of our lives. The cosmic significance of our lives. And that brings me to the conclusion. And then I'll keep it short and sweet. So what have we learned? That it is possible and in fact necessary for psychological development that we discover the unconscious dimension of our being and come to understand it as something real, alive, and foundational to our existence. Edinger suggests that we come to this realization when we discover the limits of our ego, when we are in the wilderness, when we discover the insufficiency of ego in the face of some overwhelming experience. Ordinary life, of course, furnishes innumerable opportunities to hit this particular wall. And when you do, you, you can realize that what you think you are, your ego, must be transcended. Now, only when we reach our limits do we think to seek beyond them. And beyond the limits of the ego, there is something more. The discovery of this something more is what Edinger called the discovery of God. This is the recognition that what we are is deeper than mere ego. In fact, ego rests upon this deeper thing. The unconscious, the archetypal psyche, the unknowable mystery, the thing we call God. This is what we discover. And we find it hidden within ourselves. The discovery that we have an unconscious, non-physical dimension to our existence that is real and potent within us is what Jung called individuation. It is a natural step in human development, but quite the strange one. It's the realization that you are more than you imagine you are, that you extend beyond your ego in untold and myriad ways, and that you are a genuine mystery to yourself. There is part of you, perhaps the greatest part, that is unknown to you, dissociated, unconscious. And just what the hell is that? The thought makes one fear the unknown within. It allows us to be afraid of ourself. And what is it we're afraid of? interesting here that the Bible should provide the same answer that Edinger does. The Bible tells us that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And Edinger, that a conscious encounter with the archetypal psyche is the discovery of God. So individuation, it seems, is something like a description of mystical experience, of becoming one with God. Edinger correctly points out that this must be an eternal, ongoing process, a sort of back and forth between ego and self, between you and God. Reaching this state where ego can dance with God is mankind's most difficult challenge. We must first discover our dance partner, or we will remain forever a wallflower, 
on the edge of redemption, but never tipping into it. But when we discover God within, we begin something we know not what. We find ourselves in God's presence, giving and receiving from it. We find ourselves in relationship with, in dialogue with, the source of being itself. This is what my Christian upbringing always tried to teach me, that we must have a relationship with God, that we must speak to Him and listen for His response. When we can do this, we set the stage for metanoia, for apotheosis, for the revelation that ego and self are one, that God and creation are one, that thou art that. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.